and chapter 5. I'm going to read from verse 14 to uh, the end. Uh, But before I do that, let me pray for Lewis before he comes to speak to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once more for bringing Lewis here this morning to speak to us. We pray that you will be with him, that you will bless him as he comes to minister your word. Give him wisdom and insight and help. And Lord, we pray for ourselves that as we would hear your word, that you would help us not just hear it, but be those who receive that message and repent in faith and obedience and live for you in our lives. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to read, and then I'm going to ask Lewis to come and speak to us. From uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, page 1161 of the Church Bible. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in, that, in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, gone and the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciles us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ and not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, and though God was making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might, might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Lewis, can I invite you? Well, good morning again. Uh, it's very good to be in the church. I was so excited to come and uh, be at the church. I wanted to hear David, the minister, preach, you know, because, I mean, he's the minister I just wanted, we were on a holiday, my wife and I, and uh, we're going to Germany tomorrow for a little ministry, and we thought, boy, wouldn't it be great to take some time off, go to Scotland, hear Robertson preach, you know, and be in McChain's church, you know. It's a big deal for some of us. Uh, Some of you probably wonder who he is, but I knew him. No, I didn't know him. I'm old, but I didn't know him, but reading about him, you feel like you know him. He was one of the most lovable fellows in church history, I think. Anyway, so here we come, and David goes sick, and you know that he's had two uh, ulcers, and he may have a third one, and he probably, when he knew I was coming, he said, I'm going to hospital, and uh, decided to disappear from the scene. But we pray that the Lord will restore him quickly, and I probably will only see him for a few minutes, maybe to pray this afternoon. But uh, it's uh, exciting to be back in Scotland. I've been in this country many, many times since 1978, when a farmer from up in Aberdeen who does not speak English of any kind, uh, he, uh, 
he took us around and organized a festival, a campaign. We call them festivals nowadays. Yeah, up in Petodri Stadium. It was so cold up there. It was, it was only St. Paul would have done it besides us. And uh, had to wear long johns because the wind came in and whipped around all over Aberdeen. And it was a wonderful time. And so since then, we've been in many, many places. And I met some of you who we've seen each other in other towns. But this morning, uh, as I was thinking, I, I remember reading a little magazine uh, from Wales. And it was for youth. And it opened up by saying, it was a series of Bible studies. And this one was on the new birth. And it opened up by saying, conversion to Christ is a staggering event. I'd never thought of it in those terms. And I thought only a Britisher would pick just the right word, you know. Conversion to Christ is a staggering event. And immediately, I began to think, of course, of this passage here uh, in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians that was just read. And uh, I began to think of verse 17, which is very famous among people who know the Bible. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or a new creature altogether, some translations say. The old is gone, the new has come. And I've always, since I was a little boy, listening to preachers, missionaries, and all sorts of other preachers, I would hear that verse repeated over and over. And I had never really sat down to think, what is it that's gone? What is it that's new? And so when uh, this little article from Wales popped into my eyes, I thought, what is that is so staggering about coming to Jesus Christ? Now, perhaps you noticed, and I'm sure that your minister has preached from 2 Corinthians, uh, in this passage that was just read by Brian, uh, was there are three big words that pop out at you. The first one is, it isn't in the text, but the, but the thought is there, is redemption. In other words, the rescue operation that God did on the cross of Calvary. I like to use the word rescue because for non-believers it's easier to get rescue than, uh, uh, than the word uh, redemption. You have to explain a lot. But God's rescue operation was that God was in Christ uh, working a, a marvelous plan. And the staggering thing to begin with is that God himself would come into the life of a person because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And it says over here that the purpose of the compelling love of Christ is that, he, that those who live, that is we who believe in him, should live no longer for ourselves, but for him who for our sakes both died and rose again. Now, when it says that little phrase, conversion to Christ is a staggering event, I was thinking of two things. Talking to the children, it came back to my head. When you're a child and you give your life to Christ, receiving Him and converting to Christ is a staggering event. But a child doesn't get it because all I knew in my case, when I was 12 years old, as I told the children, I was only 12. Well, for me, it was that I had a foul temper and it was bad, but, you know, that's it. I had no mother-in-law to beat up on or to beat up on me. I hadn't committed any of the big ones, you know, that we often think about. It was just a foul temper. I had a bad mouth. We played football, which we call soccer in the States nowadays. And when you play soccer, it's conducive to using foul language. So I had plenty of it. And so I felt, I'm condemned. I'm going to hell. And all I wanted was to have eternal life. And that's been terrific all through my life. The missionaries used to hammer home John 10:28. I give them eternal life. 
they shall never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hands. That was the big teaching, and it was powerful. But then as you grow up, you begin to realize, okay, that was what I was thinking of that night when that young missionary, he was only 22, by the way, sat me down and led me to be converted to Christ. It was staggering, but I didn't know the, all the implications of it. At that moment, all I wanted was to be forgiven and have the assurance of eternal life, which is already pretty staggering. But as I began to think about it, then comes the next uh, letter R, and it's in verse 17 that we just quoted. It's regeneration. So the first one is the phrase redemption, to be rescued from the world, to be rescued from sin, to be rescued from the clutches of our habits and our uh, addictions and our slavery to certain sins that we all have. The second one is regeneration. We become new people. And even though, as I said, I was only 12, I didn't get the whole implication of that thought of being staggering to be converted to Christ. Through the years, I realized how staggering it is, and I'm going to give you a little list of things in a second. But the second thing here is, I was regenerated that night. I, if you'd ask me, uh, Louis, were you regenerated? I'd say, what's that? You know, I mean, at 12, you don't get it. And even at 35, if you come to Christ, you believe in Him, usually we come to Christ in a crisis. Because we are stubborn, most people are converted to Christ in a moment of crisis. Either something horrible has happened in their life, or their marriage is falling apart, or they've been discovered cheating. That's why so many people in jail are converted to Christ. Because for the first time in their life, they face the reality that they've really messed up in their life. And they say, no excuses, I'm in jail. Even the secular judges believe I'm guilty. How much more God Almighty? And so many people repent. Not only, you know, wild people, but highly educated people who end up in jail. Suddenly they face the reality and they turn to God and say, God, I have really messed up my life. Uh, I need forgiveness. I need to be a new person. I need to be reborn. I need to be regenerated. And that's what happens when you receive Christ. And then the third one is reconciliation. And you notice it says, we are reconciled to God by the death of His Son. It says over here, we preach the gospel of reconciliation. And earlier, uh, a, a gentleman uh, read a passage in Isaiah 52, where it says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who say to Jerusalem, Your God reigns. It's very good news uh, to, be, to be converted to Christ. But I made a little list, and I've got it in a little piece of paper that I wrote down when I read that article, what really is so staggering about receiving Jesus Christ. Yes, it's true. The first thing is that you're redeemed, you're rescued from your own sinfulness and the world and all the evil things that we confessed in the general confession a few minutes ago. Secondly, we've been regenerated. That's a big event. It's a staggering thing to become a new person. And you only learn of it as the years go by and as you grow in the knowledge of God and the Bible and worship and the fellowship of a group like this one. And by the way, you've, you've got a great congregation here, you know. I thought I'm coming to an old Scottish town. They'll all be old like me, you know. And look at this section is all, well, except for one man. You all look like <laughs> universe. He, he and I joked at the entrance so I can point him out. Uh, he said, uh, I didn't know you were famous. I said, I just told you, you know. Uh, 
but uh, great to see university students. And all those babies, what's going on in Scotland? There must be a lot of Irish people here. I mean, uh, all these babies uh, being born. It's a beautiful sight, and it's a beautiful thing. But anyway, I, I made a list to myself. What is so staggering? And let me give you just, I only have about 20. I'm not going to preach on all 20. I'm just going to quote it. The first thing I wrote down was, once I was lost, now I am found. Once I was blind, now I can see. Oh, you, you do respond, do you? Yeah, good, good, good. Uh, the, the third one is, once I was dead, now I'm alive. Once I was a slave, now I am free. Now, right there, that's pretty staggering if you think about it. And if that was all that happened, the moment you're converted to Christ, that is amazing. And it's true. This isn't hot air. This isn't just some beautiful little poem that one says or some truth that is religious and it sounds good. It's reality. And those of us who've known Jesus Christ for a few years, we know it's true. We were lost. We didn't know what was going on. We just lived and ate and drank and loved and went to work or study or whatever. But life didn't seem to have a purpose. We were lost. Now we've been found. Second, once we were blind, we couldn't see God. When you, when you hear an atheist talk about God and mock, sometimes when you're young, you want to put up a fight. When you get to be my age, you just feel sorry for them because they're so blinded and they're sincere sometimes, but they don't know God. We know Him. We know Him. We've experienced Him. We enjoy His company every day. But you're not going to argue about that. And then the third one, I was dead, but I'm alive. And I was a slave and I'm free. That doesn't mean we're perfect. It just means that we're not slaves anymore to some of the things that enslave us. But there's more. See if you think this is staggering. Once I was empty, now I'm the temple of God. Once I was in darkness, now I'm in the light. Once I lived in two dimensions, body and soul. Now I live in three dimensions, body, soul, and spirit, because I'm alive to God. Once I was in the kingdom of Satan, now I'm in the kingdom of God. Is that staggering or not? Think about it. It's very staggering. And it's all true. It's all reality. But there's more. Let me give you some more. Once I was guilty, now I'm forgiven. Once I was on a slimy pit, now my feet are on the rock. Once I was condemned, now I'm exonerated. Once I was a loser in the game of life, now I'm a winner by the power of Jesus Christ. Is that staggering or not? And that's only half of my list, and my list is short. The other one says, once I was hopeless, now I'm filled with expectation. Once I was on the way to hell, I'm on my way to heaven. Once I was under the curse of the law, now I'm rescued from the law. Once I was rebellious, now I'm surrendered. Is that staggering or not? It really is. And it's, it all happens the moment you receive Jesus Christ. Now, you may not know it at that point. Most of us didn't, of course. But as you grow in your faith, you say, this is amazing. It is a staggering moment when a man or a woman or a boy or a girl gives their life to Jesus Christ and receive him by faith with a repentant heart. Something happens that even they don't realize. Now, with some people, it's very evident. For instance, we, my wife and I, I was going to introduce you and I forgot, as usual, she is, she is in the front. Anyway, we have four sons. And uh, three of them turned out to be, from their youth on up, you know, they converted early on. They were baptized. They began to serve the Lord. 
They had a few moments of foolish stuff, but basically you could tell they were in the kingdom of God. But we have another son, and he has a Scottish name, Andrew. And Andrew was not a converted young man. And from about age of 12 or 13, we could tell this boy does not know Jesus Christ. It wasn't that he blasphemed the name of the Lord. He didn't curse the gospel and mock God. No, no, no. He was a fabulous son, went to university. There he really showed what he was really like, University of Oregon in the western coast of the USA. No Sunday school, as I can tell you. Uh, and so lots of drinking and drugs and fooling around. And, and uh, his life was very painful. Luckily, he was a few miles away, so we didn't have to watch him. But uh, we knew what was going on. No, we didn't know half of what's going on. Uh, but... Uh, one day he was converted at age 27. We were in Jamaica, uh, and he was working in Boston on the east coast of the USA, and I invited him to come to Jamaica, and uh, we knew he didn't want to really go, but he liked fishing, and in the Caribbean you can fish big marlin. So we said, Andrew, we've got a Jewish Christian friend who's got a yacht. He'll take you fishing. Why don't you come to Kingston, and you can go fishing? Of course, he knew that we were fishing for him, and he knew that we knew what we were playing here, you know. He's not an idiot. Uh, and so he knew that we were trying to fish him into the kingdom of God. But he said, okay. It was in February. In Boston, it's bitter cold, two or three feet of snow. Jamaica is warm and nice. So he said, all right, Dad, I'm coming. So he came. And the Holy Spirit of God got a hold of him at last, at age 27. And uh, in a few weeks... He had really seen a great change in his life. He called me up from Jamaica after the campaign, the last night. He came to the hotel room where we were getting ready to leave the next morning. And he knocked on the door and he said, Mom, Dad, I'm back, I'm back. I've given my life to the Lord. You know, wow, this was good. Now we wanted to see a change. And then he went back to Boston. And then he came for a youth retreat in Jamaica. And in, at the youth retreat, apparently, uh, he got under real conviction of wanting to clear the decks in his life. And he called me up on the phone after it was over, and he began to confess all his sins to the Lord. And he said, Dad, I wanted them off my chest. I want them all out there. His idea was that you had to confess everyone. And for three hours, some of the young people had to listen I guess it got pretty hot, and so the leader said, Girls, you better leave the room. And uh, as he kept com com confessing his sins. And when it was three hours, he said, Dad, we left to go and play on the beach, and suddenly I remembered a bunch of other things I hadn't confessed. So I said, You guys go to the beach, I'm staying in here. And he stayed alone, and he said, Dad, for another hour, I just kept pouring and pouring out all the sins that I could remember so the blood of Jesus could cleanse them and I could feel peace in my conscience. Well, when he finished that, he called me up and he said, can I come home? He resigned from the business in Boston, came back to Oregon. We live on the West Coast. And we began to study the Bible together. And one day he was reading in, a, in Hebrews 9.14 that says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from evil works so that you can serve the living and true God? Andrew was 27, and he said, Dad, do you think I could serve God with all the stuff I've done? I said, it says it right there. You know, the blood of Christ will cleanse your conscience. And you should see him now. He is totally transformed. His conversion is visible. The change is evident. And you know, when somebody has lived a bit of a wild life, when they're converted to Christ, everybody can see the change. 
no more drinking, no more drugs, no more fooling around at night in places you shouldn't be. Suddenly you walk with God. It's a new day and it's very visible. But some of us who were converted as children, you couldn't see the change, but the change actually was taking place. And you know, that's what's so staggering. And let me give you just three more and then I'm getting back to the text. Uh, I wrote down, once I was on my own, now God answers my prayers. Once I was a beggar, now I'm a child of the King. Once I was a loner, now I'm baptized into the church of Jesus Christ. Once I was an enemy of God, now I'm a friend of the Lord Jesus. Once I was a selfish wretch, now God has a plan for my life. And you know, when you think about that, you suddenly realize, yes, conversion to Christ is a staggering experience. Because if anyone is in Christ, you become a new person altogether. The old is gone and the new has come. And when you think about that, you say, this is not a matter of changing religion or becoming a religious person. It's a new relationship with God, where God becomes your father, God the Father. Jesus Christ comes into your life and purifies your guilt and your sin and your conscience is clean and you can serve the living and true God with a clear conscience. You can talk to him without any cloud between you and your creator. It is a staggering thing that happens when you open your heart to Jesus Christ. And that changes a life. And you know, uh, we, we've got to face the reality that even in a Protestant nation like Scotland tends to be, how many people there are who don't get the point that we're not talking about being more religious or less religious or better religion or worse religion. It's an encounter with a living God through Jesus Christ that absolutely changes all your life. Whether you're a child, a middle-aged person, or an old grandpa or grandma. And it all starts at that moment when you become a new person. If anyone is in Christ, you become a new person altogether. So the question is, are you a new person in Christ? Have you experienced the new birth? Can you say, yes, I've seen the impact of uh, that staggering moment when Christ came into my life. Yes, I know that my sins are forgiven. Yes, I have peace with God. My conscience is clear because through the cross of Jesus Christ, my sins have been taken care of. It's a great moment. So when you're converted, really three major things happen and they come out of the passage. The first one is, and it's very simple, and for those of us who've known Christ a long time, this is basic stuff, but I wanted to bring it out anyway. The first thing is, all your past, forever, forgiven, once for all, never to be repeated. That is a glorious thing. And you know when the scripture says, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, purifies from all sin, and you finally get it, that it's really true, that you truly, truly, truly are forgiven of all your sins. What a moment that is. And I saw it in Andrew. I saw it in my heart, of course. But I saw it in Andrew in such a visible way. What a change in this young man's life. He married a girl who's a Jewish Christian from Jamaica. I'll explain it some other day. It's a complicated story. But Wendy is his wife. And they have two boys. And they uh, adopted a little girl from Ethiopia. And you should see him now. Uh, what a servant of Christ. He was in Burundi, and some of you who were in Burundi this past summer, he was there also in the capital having a, a campaign and winning hundreds and hundreds of people to Jesus Christ. Uh, what, a, what a beautiful thing it is to see a young man whose life is changed and transformed by Jesus Christ. He wasn't converted, 
You know, many of our family friends used to say, oh, he's a fine fellow. He's just, you know, typical boy. My wife used to say, no, if it looks like a bird, feathers like a bird, flies like a bird, squawks like a bird, he's a bird. He's not a child of God. And when he was converted, you saw the change. He really became a child of God. So it doesn't matter whether you're born in a, in a Christian home with a great mother like his mother and a father that couldn't be better, me, you know, you have to have your own experience with Jesus Christ. Yeah, you can be brought up listening to the gospel a hundred times, a thousand times, but until you experience it, you're as dead as anybody else if you don't know Jesus Christ. But the glory of it is, I love Hebrews 10, 17 that says, your sins and evil behavior I will remember no more, says the Lord. I just love that one. To me, I meet so many people. I've been at it for 50 years. My wife and I have been married 50 years, and we've been preaching together all over the world. How many people feel, God could never forgive me my sins? I've done stuff that nobody should ever repeat. And that's true. But on the cross, God did such a glorious work that your sins and evil behavior, I will remember no more. No more, no more. And if you are here this morning, and you carry a load of guilt, and you wonder, and you say, if I told you what I've done, you'd never say that, that God would remember it no more. The fact is that when Christ died on the cross, you remember he cried out first, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was a rhetorical question. Of course, he knew why he was forsaken. He said that for our benefit. He was, he was abandoned by God the Father for those hours on the cross because he was carrying on himself the sins of us all. God the Father laid them on him, and so he was paying for us. But once he did it, I was going to read the passage, but time is short, but you know it, I'm sure. Jesus Christ cried out, it is finished. And then a few moments later, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that was that. The job was done. The cross was sufficient. The death of Christ took care of guilt. So if you're here this morning, and maybe you stumbled this week, and you did something that you better not tell anybody else, but the Lord knows, and he says to you, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies from all sin. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it is glorious to know that it happens once, and then you are related to God forever because we become children of God. But the second thing that happens, and to me it's just as exciting and just as staggering, is this. The moment we receive Jesus Christ, we become a temple of God. We receive the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes we who preach the gospel sometimes forget to emphasize this. We talk a lot about the cross, and that's right, because the cross is the foundation of our relationship with God. But then what about from the moment you receive Christ till the day you die, which could be 50 or 70 years from that moment? What happens then? This is glorious, that we become a temple of God's Spirit. I didn't get it, to be honest, till I was 25 years old. I flew to the USA to take a one-year grad course in theology, and I stayed in the home of a minister who is now in heaven. And I saw in him a quality of life that I thought, boy, this man has something that I still don't know. And I remember reading a lot of books about the victorious Christian life and how to live a holy life and so on. And I just wasn't getting it. 
I, I'm sure that the Bible teachers taught us that we become the temple of God. It wasn't emphasized in the circles that I uh, ran around with in those years. But then when I began to, uh, to see uh, uh, in the life of Mr. Ray Stedman uh, a quality of life, and I listened carefully and I watched him all summer before I went to take that one-year grad course. And then an Englishman by the name of Major Ian Thomas came over uh, to our theological school and he spoke one day in chapel and he spoke about Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. But it's not I, it's Christ living in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And he explained it in less than 20 minutes and I finally got it that I was a temple of the living God. And then it, I saw it all over the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Don't you know that your body is the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? And then in chapter 3 it says, uh, If anybody destroys God's temple, God will destroy him because God's temple is sacred. And here comes the line, And you are that temple. And it just gripped me. How come I didn't get it all those years from about 18 to 25 when I was really seriously walking with the Lord? Why didn't I get it? And I've come to realize that many believers, we know that our sins are forgiven in the past and we know that we have eternal life and heaven in the future, but it's the in-between time that becomes the real problem. And I tell you, dear brothers and sisters and friends here today, the, the most glorious, the heart of the gospel, the foundation is the cross. Without that, we wouldn't even be related to God. But once you've got that settled, the heart of the message is that God himself comes to live within us and that the Holy Spirit actually came into our lives the moment we were converted. Again, I didn't get it when I was 12. I didn't understand it till I was 25. And now it seems so obvious. Luis Palau, walking down the streets of Dundee, and you whatever your background might be, whether you're a student or lived here forever or just moved here a few years ago, when you walk down the streets of Dundee, maybe nobody knows you, but you can say to yourself, I am a temple of the living God. Christ lives in me. I have the resurrection power of Christ. Ephesians 1 says that the, re the power that raised Jesus from the dead indwells us. In other words, we have supernatural power by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's what revolutionizes a life. When you get that, you begin to say, so it's not a bunch of rules. It isn't people telling me how I'm supposed to act. It's God himself living in me by the Holy Spirit, giving me power to overcome temptation. That doesn't mean I'm perfect, that's for sure. But it does mean that we're not slaves anymore. That the Holy Spirit living in us gives us a supernatural power to live a life that is pleasing to God. And that's what's so staggering. Think about it. I mean, I didn't get it. I mean, the cross meant so much to me. Communion, I love the Lord's Supper. In our church, we had communion every Sunday. And so we were always reminded, ever since I was a little boy, before I was converted, I sat in the back and watched the elders and the adults uh, participate, and we just had to watch. But when I was finally baptized, at, at, at age 17 and a half, at my request, I'd, I'd been, I shouldn't get into this, I guess, but anyway, I'd been um, sprinkled. What's the term? Yeah, baptized. I guess baptized, yeah. Anyway, when I was baptized by immersion, I better say it once and for all, uh, when I was baptized by immersion, I began to 
attend the Lord's Supper and participate. And it was so thrilling to think about the cross Sunday after Sunday. But the thing that I really had needed was, what about tomorrow? What about opportunities to serve? What about temptation? And when I got it, it revolutionized my life. That now it wasn't me struggling and dedicating my life and rededicating and super rededicating it again. It was Christ living in me by the Holy Spirit revolutionized my way of looking at life and looking at people and serving Christ in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So that's the second thing. And then the third one, and we're coming to the end. And what happens is this. Your future is guaranteed. We are reconciled to God by the death of his son and we have eternal life. Eternal life begins now. Many in my part of the world, in Latin America, where I was born and ministered quite a lot, it, it, the, the religious background uh, implies that you cannot know if you're forgiven and if you have eternal life until you die. So if you say to a Latin with his religious or her religious background, do you have eternal life? They will usually say, how can I know till I die? But the problem is it's too late by then. So you've got to settle it before. And so the assurance of eternal life begins now. And I love 1 John chapter 5, where God says these words. He says, uh, God has given us eternal life. This life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son of God has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So the big question is, do you have the Son of God? If you do, you have eternal life. And you don't need to question it anymore. You don't need to allow the enemy to question it or your own weaknesses to question it. You have eternal life because eternal life is the gift of God. But the fruit of that is when you die, you go to heaven. And you know, I told the boys and girls, and perhaps you were listening, my father died when I was a 10-year-old boy. He was a businessman in Argentina. And uh, he uh, received Christ when he was about 22, 23, somewhere in there. I wasn't even born yet. I was, as they say, in my mother's womb. I think that's what they said in the old days anyway. And uh, one day my mom had become a believer. And uh, she had gone to the Catholic Church for many years. And she used to be the organist and played in mass, played the organ. But she was always searching for eternal life. And this Britisher... This Britisher came to Argentina to a little town outside of Buenos Aires and he would go door to door giving away New Testaments and talking. To, and since my mom spoke a little English because of the Scottish dad, uh, they began a conversation. And she, he gave her the New Testament and my mom told me later as I grew up that she began to read in Matthew and she came to the verse that says, Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And she began to cry because she said, I'll never see God. I don't have a pure heart. I'll never see him. And then the Holy Spirit reminded her of a verse that the Catholic priest would say at Mass. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And somehow in her mind, the Holy Spirit put it together. Yes, you have a guilty heart. No, you will never see God, but behold the Lamb of God that takes away. So my mom received the assurance of salvation on her knees, reading the New Testament, and she was all excited. So she went to the missionary and said, I suppose I'm not supposed to go to Catholic Church anymore. And the missionary was a wise Britisher and said, no, 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 you keep going over there and tell all your friends what happened to you. And at night, at night you come to our Bible study. It was a little chapel. It's still there 
the size of this. No kidding. Only about 20 people could sit. So my mom would go. I, I was only a baby, so this is family lore. And my father, being a typical Latin fellow, nice guy, but just not churchy, he would drive her to the little chapel and then leave and come back and pick her up an hour and a half later. They do that all the time in Latin America. But one day, I was still a baby, so I, I'm telling you what I heard from the family. Uh, my dad walked in and sat by my mother, and she was high as a kite. And uh, suddenly the preacher, the Englishman or whatever he was, they, was reading from the Scripture and explaining the Gospel, and my dad stood up and interrupted. And it wasn't a Pentecostal church. I mean, he just inter everybody was shocked, you know. My dad gets up and he says, uh, right now, <laughs> and he wasn't a big loud guy like I am. He said, right now, I receive Jesus Christ as my heart, as my personal Lord and Savior, and he sat down. And my mom wanted to shout hallelujah, but you don't do that in this particular church. And uh, wanted to dive under the chair, it was so embarrassing, interrupting this British. But my dad's life was transformed. And I heard only a few years ago that the, the, the British missionary said, when Mr. Palau Sr.'s life was converted, his wallet was converted also, which apparently was a big thing. And uh, he was converted to Christ. But he died at age 34. And I was only 10 years old when he died. I was in boarding school. And my grandma called me up and said, get over quickly to your house. Your daddy is very sick. And I had to take a train and an underground and then another train. And when I got home, he'd just gone to be with the Lord. And my mother told me how it happened. He, uh, the, over there in Argentina, when in those days, it was during World War II, uh, when, when you had a disease and there was no cure, they sent you home to be surrounded by your family. And so he was taken home, and he was yellow as could be from the galloping fever. His lips were broken, and you could tell he was dying. And he suddenly sat up in bed and began to sing a song about heaven, clapping his hands from our Sunday school. We used to sing it. It was a Salvation Army song. And he began to sing it in Spanish. There's crowns up there, bright crowns for you and me, the palm of victory, the palm of victory. He sang it three times. And then his, he was so exhausted from the galloping fever, his head fell on the pillow. And he, my dad pointed up to heaven and he said, I'm going to be with Jesus, which is better by far. And a few moments later, he gone to be with the Lord. And I, I just came home, and I just couldn't believe that he was dead. I was only 10 years old. But I thought, that's the way to die, you know? You can sing, you can quote the Bible and go to heaven. I think that's why I'm an evangelist, trying to get as many fathers and mothers and teenagers to come to know Jesus Christ. But one day I'll see him. And, you know, when I look in the book of Revelation, where it says that there are millions of millions and 10,000 times 10,000, the RSV says, Bowing before the throne. I can imagine my father bowing before the throne. And someday we'll all be there who know Jesus Christ. So, it's a staggering event. I hope I've convinced you. I know you believed it, of course. But if you've never, if there's somebody here today who has never received Jesus Christ, and you've never experienced that staggering moment of Christ coming into your heart, why not surrender your life right now and say, Lord Jesus Christ, I want to be forgiven, I want to receive the Holy Spirit, and I want the assurance of eternal life. I surrender to you, I receive you, I believe you, I confess you, and he will come into your heart. And I'll finish with this word from Jesus Christ. He said, I stand at your door and knock. If anyone hears my voice 
and opens the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. So if you're sensing God calling you, and if you're sensing that he's tapping at the door of your heart, the best and only good response is to say, Lord Jesus, I believe you, I receive you, I trust you, and let him come into your life, and you'll never be the same again. Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Oh God, our Father, how we thank you so much in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, for the staggering reality that becomes ours the moment Jesus Christ comes into our lives. This morning, our Father, we worship you, we praise you, we thank you for the day that you came into our lives, for the day that you forgave our sins, for the day that the Holy Spirit came to live within us, and that day when we got the assurance of eternal life. Thank you, O Lord, for that eternal gift of yours, and we want to serve you all the rest of our days to be those who carry the good news to others who still are lost, they're still blind, they still feel empty and lonely without knowing you. So, Lord, may your blessing be upon each one of us, and thank you again for the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.